This is the Talk Editions Podcast, Episode 6. It's really difficult to find sounds that don't tip one way or the other. You know, when you talk to your best friend on the phone, you're immediately like, oh, are you having a bad day? Like, are you okay? You know, you can hear immediately. And so finding the sounds that don't already have this inner emotionality so that they can come to you as a listener and that your mind can be open. On today's episode, we're speaking with composer and vocalist Erin Gee, who has created in her mouthpiece series an ephemeral world that expands the possibilities of the voice, leaving behind the constrictive structure of language and replacing histrionic female vocals with a virtuosic mouth and a tabula rasa for an emotional palette. Begin as one piece for solo voice in 2000, the list of mouthpieces has grown to over 30 works for orchestra, opera, vocal ensemble, large chamber ensemble, and string quartet, which have been performed internationally with some of the top ensembles for new music. Aaron was cited by Alex Ross, music critic for The New Yorker, as a member of the short list of the most influential composer-vocalists of the 21st century, and is currently an associate professor of composition at Brandeis University. Her piece, Mouthpiece 28, written for talk in 2016, is featured on our recent album, Ur, and you can find a music video for the piece on Talk's YouTube channel. We had some technical difficulties at the beginning of this interview, so we're going to jump right into the middle of the conversation between Erin, Ellery Trafford, and Charlotte Mundy about Mouthpiece 28. Was there anything specific about Tox instrumentation that led you to try something new in this piece? Or um, well, there's. I mean, it it's very close to one of my absolute favorite ensembles, which is basically the small, you know, the voice and kind of a small, uh, really tight knit ensemble. So I knew you guys could like nail difficult rhythms, like, and you're, you know, you're a group together, so you're gonna, you know have this kind of group dynamic um and then the percussion which is always my you know favorite voice and percussion to kind of get the kind of percussive sounds together yeah it's really I couldn't have asked for a better ensemble I mean the flute like a string instrument and the bass flute and then like clarinet which is always like such a great bending kind of vocally um you know mixing sound so I think it was just like the perfect ensemble, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's exciting. Sweet. And the piece, Mouthpiece 28, has two sections that each repeat. Oh, yeah. And yeah. you use repeats in your work. That's like something you do often. But what's mm-hmm. it's kind of unusual in mm-hmm. like contemporary chamber music. Mm-hmm. Um, why the repeats? I think there are a few reasons. I think that the material, I mean, I think I, I'm used to the repeats now from Mouthpiece 1 has just tons of repeats. And the, the Mouthpiece 1, though, it does have, you know, slight changes when the, it's it's just a verse chorus form, but there are, when it, you know, the, the choruses come back, I alter them slightly. But I, I do like with the material because it somehow there's so much going on. I sort of, I like to have it to just give it another go, just to give it another run through the piece. But I was thinking about, you know, because I was a pianist when I first, my first degree mm. in piano, and I played a lot of 
Bach, like the English suites, and also the Brahms Handel variations. And this is exactly the structure of all of those pieces. They're short and they have repeats in the two sections. Yeah, of course. Hmm. And there, one thing I did love as a pianist was um, the second repeat of material that I've already played because you have to search for a slightly different meaning, a slightly different way of expressing the material so the material so the repeat is not ever a repeat but it's like oh but did you hear this way of that of looking at that line or did you hear the middle line in this you know and I always loved that as an interpreter but kind of like oh well what's the what is the slightly different way of kind of expressing this material the second time around and and I know I don't ever I didn't think about that when I was writing this piece I just thought about it when I was reading your question that and, and I think that's part of the reason why it didn't occur to me as kind of like unusual. It's like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. This is this kind of material. This is, you know, kind of thick and, and naughty and, and sort of there's, you know, a lot of things going on here. Let's give it another go. You know, let's yeah. give this another run. And I think it totally makes sense to give the audience a second chance to hear everything because mm-hmm. like you were saying, there's so much going on you can't hear everything yeah and it really the changes are so fast so I I just want to give yeah just a kind of another listen of like oh yeah that change oh and we're going there and then we're coming back to that material again and um that's kind of I guess what I like interesting I've never thought about Bach that way actually I've played some like violin parties and stuff on marimba and I usually just cut out the second repeat at the end because I get bored (laughs) but damn I always I'm loved the repeats. Yeah, hmm. I loved the repeat. I love the pr- I loved practicing the pr- repeat. Like, what else am I going to say mm-hmm. when I do this repeat? So, how did you switch from piano into voice? Well, this is the story of the voice. So, I switch. So, I went from piano to composition. Not yet. Not yet in voice. Not yet in voice. Right. And then, um, when. I was, so this must have been my first year, first semester of grad school. I was taking a course called Words and Music with Jeremy Dale Roberts, who was a guest um, professor at the University of Iowa. So we'd heard, you know, Berio and Ligeti, and I was sort of inspired. I heard this kind of music without text or, or sort of manipulation of text. So the big the big thing is we were required to write a solo voice piece for the final project. Hmm. So I, you know, really struggled with this and... And I sort of asked myself, okay, well, if we go away from language, um, is there another way we can go? Do we need to go in this direction of, let's say, heightened emotion or heightened theatrical direction? So is there another way? Um, That was the main question. And I simply, you know, I had a kind of handheld tape recorder. Um, I just made some lists of sounds that I could make. And then I recorded myself improvising. But I had some rules. And one of them was that I had to um, try to improvise something short that was so difficult that I couldn't repeat it. I had to relearn it from the recording. Hmm. So I would try to improvise something very difficult, then I would relearn it, then I would sort of improvise with that new material. So like, let's say do it again, and maybe expand on it and then record that. So kind of um, improvise and learn and edit kind of all at the same time with this tape recorder. And that's how I built Mouthpiece One, which is only two minutes. Now, I went to my lesson with this piece kind of in some sort of, 
you know, scratchy notation that basically I could only only I could read. And I said, you know, here's the piece, but let me just sing it for you so you can hear it. And then he said, okay, and now you're going to perform that at the next composer's concert. (laughs) And I really had no intention. It wasn't even for my voice. It was just, you know, I just happened to use that as a as a composing process. So then I did and then he said, Okay, now do it again and <laughs> do it again. <laughs> Threw you straight out there. Yeah. <laughs> and that yeah, that was that was it. And I really had to practice a lot. But yeah, so I didn't really expect to sing. It sounds like mm-hmm. your process really was one based on your own physicality though and your own practice process like it makes sense now looking back that your teacher would tell you that you had to perform the pieces (laughs) that's a whole nother layer I guess now the other layer is happening where other people learn your language yeah yeah but I taught it to someone right away you know that same year how did that go it went really really well I taught it almost by rote um we worked for a month together and like a few times a week and she memorized it um, and she was in the opera program and it was amazing because she had this like incredible breath control, which I did not have. And so she sang it sort of even a little more slowly and her high notes were kind of amazing. And it was just, yeah, it was amazing. Cool. Yeah. And then for a long time, no one sang it because that was, it was like, so it was like really intensive, the learning process, you know, you often don't have that kind of, you know, but then once I had the pieces recorded, then other people could start to learn them. So the history of this piece was... Talk had a set coming up on the Resonant Bodies Festival in 2013, and I had this idea that it would be cool to make a whole set that was coherent, and I had just read this chapbook by Ann Carson, The Albertine Workout, which is um, a poem about this character, Albertine, who is in, I believe, the fifth book of Proust's In Search of Lost Time, and Ann Carson in her very like special way sort of breaks down statistically Albertine's existence in this book and the composers who ended up writing for this set were myself and Marina Kifferstein violinist in talk and Doug Balliot and we got you to write a piece for that set too and I asked you to pick some text from Albertine workout whatever text you wanted Um, do you remember what text you chose I did not remember until (laughs) you reminded me (laughs) Um, but would you maybe will you read it and then I'll talk yeah she is 10 different Albertines in succession and everything indeed is at least double right okay yes both of these have to do with their repetition that we were talking about then everything is is at least double Um, we were talking about the form or maybe you know the form the form is is you know a b a is repeated b is repeated so i think that sort of naturally lends itself to that but there is a lot of repeated um smaller little fragments that that kind of pop up in slightly varied forms but that yeah the the 10 different albertines in succession it, there was something about um she was talking about all of the different albertines that he didn't see so they were kind of her personal manifestations of herself and, and a kind of inward, you know, inward manifestations of herself, which I thought was quite nice as sort of, and in some ways this, this relates to also this, you know, this kind of return of material with in slightly different 
you know, combinations of the group or slightly, slightly varied, but you can see the material popping up again and again, sort of this going back and forth between the, the song and the creaky voice, you know, that kind of material or the, you know, also the leaping, the pops or some, you know, this kind of bouncing around was like it w- was like oh kind of these you know manifestations of, of her personal identity and her kind of her world like her her inner world that she was able to um draw strength from and cool and math 28 that means there are like five or six before that <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's some yes there's um yes um they're they all they all come before and um Hilariously, I was thinking about this. I actually wrote Mouthpiece 29 before 28. What? Yeah. Why? Um, because tw- because 29, it was about the numbers. Somehow, the piece itself, 29, was sort of this precipice piece. Hmm. And 29 is like a precipice number. Prime number, right? Yeah. Oh, is it a prime? I believe so. Yeah. And then 28 is just like felt more right for this piece Hmm. but that's the only time i've ever done that for some reason needed to be 28 what's the instrumentation for 29 that's the um it was for tanglewood and it's voice and um violin viola and double bass yeah something about the material was sort of like fall at the edge of something this piece was um it was sort of coming out it's very similar to 28 to 29 so 28 and 29 are like in a kind of a pool together and the this kind of I feel like is even sort of more worked out of that material this this 28 right where do you think the material comes from well um I did a, some improvisation sort of a lot of improvisation for both of these pieces recorded them the, and that I think came from you know reading the poem and just sort of going for it, like pressing record and just doing a bunch of different improvisations. and But trying to be specific and also go and sort of searching for new, I don't know, a bit of a new direction. When, so I was trying to be also, so improvise, go in a new direction, but also keep it sort of confined. Like what is this new world that, you know, this new stuff. So so this one, yeah, it was kind of, it was, it was different. It was a sort of different direction kind of leaping you can hear in this one this you know that you do all that creaky voice uh going back and forth so that that was kind of for some reason it's very simple but it was like one of the big ideas for this piece it's like two streams of things and you're like hopping between well so can we go back a little bit we're the very first few mouthpieces are all solos right um yes one two and four three is the first ensemble piece gotcha and what was your process for adding instruments into that mix? Because you're obviously so comfortable with your own voice. You know, how did you yeah. think about making that bigger? Well, the first um, Mouthpiece 3, I worked with Klong Form Veen because they were um, in residence at the University for Music and Dramatic Arts in Graz. And so I w- went to some of the players and, and I sang small snippets of some of the voice stuff. And I said, how exactly can you imitate this? on your instrument (laughs) and then so then we worked out oh okay oh you can do that okay then we worked out that it's so kind of little chunk by chunk we worked out almost exact transcription for the instruments so three doesn't even have voice in it except for the flutist is doing ava for what's really great it's like singing and doing flute stuff so she um i did some voice stuff for her but 
um, it was always this sort of expansion or sort of mirroring and expansion of the f- of the vocal sounds. And then in six and seven and ten, then it really, I really started to work even more with this idea of you know sort of like the super mouth like everything is sort of it's just the one mouth so the super mouth is you know I can pop and sing at the same time and whistle and sing but I can't pop and whistle and sing so with the the voice and the ensemble is the is the one mouth the one super mouth to be able to sort of do everything so sounds you know the low kind of buzzing sound all of those sounds are sort of spread out into the into the instruments and are the instruments always um always mirroring always symmetrical or do you sometimes try to sort of change the way the voice sounds by like adding a different instrumental timbre yeah yeah exactly so the combinations Mm. make it something new okay that is exactly it so it's always like maybe a little bit of masking you know if you if you're doing sort of a pitch and rhythmic unison you can really start to change you know just change the actual perception of the original tone yeah yeah so cello and trombone on the same pitch really sort of transforms into some something like you almost can't hear what that timbre is mm-hmm. um but in the same way yeah, and, and it's all you can hear it also in 28 sort of the real combination of and and the kind of always sort of changing um you know like now this group this smaller grouping now this small grouping now this small grouping so that it's kind of always varied cluster yeah. of, of timbre we really realized that working on the music video for Mouthpiece 28, we were like trying to show the different groupings in the video and realizing just they were constantly changing. And yeah, it's fun to be able to visualize it. I know, I know, I know. It's so great. And such a great comment from my dad who was like, I, I saw the video and I really understand your music now. <laughs> Happy to help. Th- thanks, Aaron's dad. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's fantastic. How does it feel to hear other people perform your works? And also, how much do you want people to rely on your recordings of your works when learning? Mm. The first question, it's um, it's kind of amazing and great. And it's sort of less and less shocking. I think at first it was like, oh, my gosh, it really sounds so different. But it's because I was so used to my own voice. And, of course, everyone sounds different. I mean, that's the beauty of the human. So <laughs> so it was it was a little bit more shocking in the beginning. But also now people are kind of amazing. I mean, the, with the pops and people can really, really do them now. Um, so I'm just always amazed to how it's just like it sounds fantastic. Um, I really like it. And I don't. Yeah, I just think it's great. Oh, wait, what was the second question? How much do you want people to imitate sort of your sound on recordings? Because you do... I have listened to recordings of you performing your own works, and um, I think they're really beautiful, and they they have definitely influenced how I've performed your pieces, but I've worked, like, working with Ekmele's on the movements from sleep. I've noticed that people that haven't listened to your recordings just approach it very differently yeah as a first instinct yeah and I wonder if maybe that's interesting to you my instinct was to be like no this is how you have to do it (laughs) don't be so classical sounding (laughs) but maybe it's kind of nice to have different ways of yeah interpreting the notation I think it's interesting I mean I think that you're right that I mean I I have a particular voice quality I mean partly because uh you know I 
didn't really train or sort of or or I trained on the pieces let's say or I you know I just sort of work with a kind of flat tone and I have sort of breathy voice but I I do like to hear I mean I like to hear other people's interpretation I think I think that you're right there is though there is sort of a kind of a world that that I sort of go for you know I do I do use that straight tone non vibrato like lighter kind of breathier voice yeah, right. Less of an intense like core to the sound. Yeah. More sp- closer to speech. Yes, 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 yes. That's good. Yeah, these are all things that I don't even really know how to. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that is exactly right. That is exactly right. Yeah, I do kind of. I like that. And it and it's interesting that you say closer to speech because I wouldn't I wouldn't have known to say that, but that is exactly true because uh, from the beginning it was like, um, even though they were virtuosic in the sense that like you had to really, I mean, I had to really practice them a lot. Um, I did not want them to sound difficult. I wanted them to sound like this is how I speak on a daily basis. This is not, you know, I'm not exerting a special effort because there's so much there. Yeah. I just want to be like, Oh, this is how I normally just sort of Mm -hmm. move the things in my mouth. And, and yeah. So in, in that way, not a kind of a, pressed or extra kind of exertion but just like a very a relaxed approach which is speech like yeah well we talked a little bit earlier about the uh concept of the super mouth yeah just reading through your your notes for the over overall mouthpiece series um right the super mouth that can move beyond the physical limitations of a single vocal track merging the voice with both the instruments and with breath and repeatedly returning to formlessness through a more or less pronounced utterance of the mouth and then not pre-meaning, simply never in the direction of meaning. Can you just expand on that part a little bit? Yeah, that last part. Formlessness and pre-meaning. So I think when, so especially, let's go back to, let's say, the first first mouthpiece. When I was first choosing these sounds, one of the other criteria was to try to avoid, oh, as I said, so to to walk this very fine line and uh, avoid emotional connotations in the voice i mean let's say the extreme example is like a big sigh or a laugh or a scream or a you know all those so those things but we are so attentive to voice quality and to meaning through voice that it is it's really difficult to kind of find sounds that don't tip one way or the other and but it but it's kind of great i mean because we're you know when you talk to your best friend on the phone you're immediately like oh are you having a bad day like are you okay you know Mm -hmm. you can hear immediately um and so sort of finding the sounds that that are not have you don't already have this inner kind of emotionality it doesn't mean so it doesn't mean that there's no emotion in the sounds but just that it's open to emotional interpretation Mm. so that you so that they can come to you as a listener and that you can sort of, your your mind can be open. Oh, it reminds me of this. Oh, it reminds me of that. Oh, you know, and I've gotten different kind of responses. For example, this last April in Switzerland, it's this great experience. We did Mouthpiece 10 with the Nouvelle Ensemble Contemporain. And the, some of the reactions were very different. And one with sort of, oh, it's sort of, you know, it's so, it's almost, you know, funny and kind of light. And then other people... Was that oh you know really melancholy just a really melancholy piece, and it was so fantastic that it was just that open for them 
to kind of have their own sort of space and their own pathway through the piece. So that that reminded me that I, that's that was sort of lovely just to keep it open. It seems extremely difficult though. Yeah, it like, is. It's sort of fighting against our like primal instincts to derive yeah. meaning from everything. <laughs> it's really true. It's really true. It's really true. And but there are some interesting and and so you're basically always failing, right? But you sort of try to not fail, <laughs> you, try, you know. Mm-hmm. And and you never know because other cultures have other meanings for other kind of vocal sounds. Like for example, like I would say, like oh, my mother, if she like touched something hot, she'd be like, you know. So that's like a like kind of a shocking kind of a thing. But then this sort of like this kind of inhaled we sound. Have you heard this? It's no. a very no emotion whatsoever. It's just a kind of a yes. It's not a shocking sound. It's not a. It's just a, a word said on the inhale, like in French. Mm. It. I've heard it from Sw- in. Sw- I think Swiss French. I don't know. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I could be wrong because I've talked to some people and they're like, no, no, that's not right. And like, oh yes, it is right. So like, I could be totally wrong. I've just heard it from you know, let's say one person or two people or something, and I'm kind of like, huh, that's interesting. That's a just a different use of the inhale. So it could also be like, just that person does it. I don't have any research to back up what I'm saying, but um, <laughs> I'm gonna start doing that. Just like in the deli, when I'm talking to the guy. Just be like, yeah. Yes. Hey, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's speaking on the inhale. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I like the fact that there are so many things that I don't know about other cultures, and then that I'm definitely gonna fail, but I still try. <laughs> I feel like that's it's the key to have that mindset. Like, <laughs> got to be okay with failure. <laughs> Seek yeah. out the failure. <laughs> Lean into it. <laughs> How would you say that your compositional voice or interests have changed since 2013? Wow. I think I still I what I like is I I sort of often like build and sort of take things and as I'm moving on I sort of bring bring some things forward from older pieces but um I did for a mouthpiece the, the pieces after that actually um I went to India and went to this place called the Shilam Institute in a hot spot for biodiversity and it was quite amazing so I was there for a few days listened to the bird they have an incredible number of birds and you know 27 birds endemic to the species and uh, to the area i mean and they they're just really sort of packed with a lot of um, biodiversity so i didn't know what i was going to do i was just sort of asked to write something in a piece in response to being there but what i ended up doing was coming back from there with a lot of a lot of hours of recordings that Joel Gordon great fantastic sound engineer he was there also so he did like 30 hours of recordings of the of the birds and the environment um but I came back and then I made 28 species new species of birds and then I asked them if they would like to make a piece and they said yes so that was the new a kind of a new direction from this and what I found was this approaching this the voice of different species was very interesting and also somehow similar and when I so 
you know, actually my voice is sort of making all these different new species. But I found also a different relationship to my own voice, a kind of corporeal empathy with these new kind of created species because the the different registers in my voice somehow took on a new meaning or a new feeling because I was now not a human. I was like having corporeal empathy with this sort of fantastical creature. So that was amazing. I did not expect that at all. So it opened up a lot of different registers because you know I don't do high. I wrote for you high because you can sing high. But I can't sing high at all really. I mean I avoid it at all (laughs) costs. But now but I was sort of in these higher registers as a kind of a different so I wasn't myself, I wasn't even human. I was now something else in these different registers. And the other thing that really influenced me was um, talking with Aaron Mendonza, who's a graduate of the Harvard School of Design, and he talked about how sounds can activate biodynamic energy. Also in the sense that perhaps that there is a the possibility for um, the regrowth of an old growth forest or wow. something like this. So just, just kind of opening up this possibility of, of sounds activating biodynamic energy so what does that mean actually and and this so this kind of thinking about the voice and the instruments also as sort of each of them activating energy in the other and sort of causing growth in each of the others uh you know so so each one is activating the growth in the other Mm. Um, both of these are kind of slightly new directions and I didn't expect, I didn't even know. I mean, I just, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go. I have no idea what I'm doing, but just so much information and so, um, much, you know, sensory experience and thought and just, so that's kind of, yeah, that's things that came out of here. And at the same time, I mean, that's, there are a lot of the old things are kind of, you know, filtering through, but, but new, like vocality in other species, I guess, was kind of. Um, a new layer. Right on. That's super fascinating. Yeah, it sounds like you're finding <coughs> biomimicry sort of techniques to deepen what you are already interested in. Yeah. Maybe. You want to put that in your in your bio now, like composer, performer, <laughs> creature creator, demigod. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Well, I think we now we have some questions about about you and the person. Okay. Mm. What what's Iowa like? I've never been. Oh, it's fantastic. Iowa City is amazing. Mm. The, the Iowa is fantastic. Very flat, although there are hills. When you ride a bicycle, you find out about the hills. Cool. <laughs> but, Invisible hills. Yeah, yeah, you don't notice it. <laughs> but but huge sky. Mm. Also in the winter when it's completely covered with snow and there are no clouds in the sky. So incredibly bright. It is so bright. It is incredible. A huge sky, bright and white, glistening white as far as you can see. It's amazing. And I moved there from California, you know, when I was eight, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, at that age, everything is amazing. The corn, so cool. <laughs> the coolest thing ever, corn stalks. <laughs> God, that's so cool. So that, I mean, I think I still, you know, you're learning about new burr. Everything is new. The flowers and what's this? and what. So I always, I think I still have that kind of like amazing. What's these? What are these things? So also just really kind of a great place to just kind of expand. I mean, it's very, University of Iowa was really was known for sort of experimentalism a lot in the 70s, like University of Illinois, the sort of Midwest. Um, 
yeah, it was a great place for me just to just to be doing things quietly. Nice. Yeah. Your brother is a theater maker, right? Mm-hmm. Did you? How did you both end up in the arts? And what was it like growing up with another, like, what's it been like growing up with another sort of performing artist? Oh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, Colin. Um, yeah, I mean, he was in theater forever, you know, and I was playing the piano the whole time. You know, fantastically. So he's heard, you know, he heard me practice all those years and everything. So, But when we started going to school, I remember we used to really, um, I, I would say now looking back, we practically gave each other lectures on what we were you know, he wrote me letters from Paris when he was studying in Paris. And then he would come back and they'd say, okay, I gave him some sort of condensed version of my music history. I remember mm-hmm. specifically over Christmas breaks. So I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, here we go. Let's start here. You need to know this stuff. And, you know, and that for, I don't know, we didn't necessarily have a specific purpose, but we did start working together at some point, some Christmas break, you know, got, got a studio. Let's do this. Yeah, it was kind of amazing and also just like seemed, the most normal thing to do my mom's very interested in the arts I always had books and art and everything around the house and instruments and everything so yeah seemed totally normal but th- I'm so glad I mean there was a lot of talk about you know what did you do in your um classes you know what did you do in your classes okay I did this what did you do okay he was at the um Lecoq school Jacques Lecoq school in Paris for two years um, and that's like a clown kind of sc- like classical clown sort of. Or it when, is, or but it's it's physical theater. So there's definitely a clown a clown element. There's a lot of mask work though, and there's a lot of like philosophy behind it. So at the um, and there's like commedia dell'arte, and there's you know he should really talk more about this. But they it's a real f- um, kind of full education so they the students coming out of there were kind of making their own sets and writing their own pieces and being the characters and designing their costumes and you know so you come out and you have a company and you do everything and and that's what they did they some of them Colin's friend and they they had a troupe um the flying machine so and so Jacques Lecoq when he was teaching yeah he was really sort of asking for them to build the whole thing Hmm. so yeah it was it was great and I think and what we sort of found out later, which we didn't really even talk about or realize until it was sort of already happening and had been happening for several years, which is that that I was sort of looking at these these building blocks of language or even just the, the of phonetics, so just not even a, a system of meaning, but just sounds. And he was working with kind of extremely small gestures in the body hmm. and how those would build or not build a character in, with certain attributes or, you know, but very, very, very pared down a kind of a, a stylized character or, you know, even if you look at percentages like 15% of a character or, or something like that, so that, that, the, that the smallest movement of or placement of your, you know, torso in relation to your pelvis or, or a wrist, you know, or a shoulder um, movement is somehow giving huge amounts of information. So kind of as after we'd already sort of been doing things together it was kind of like oh hmm wow this is actually really similar in some ways yeah that's interesting but I bet those tiny movements like the tiny phonetic sounds have different interpretations depending on the country you're in or a person's experience yeah yes I think they do and then but then it yeah I actually don't know 
And like, what is it? Yeah. What is the shoulder like shoulder mean if you're, you know, forward back or yeah. yeah. Who knows? What's your road trip playlist? Actually, first off, where would you go on a road trip? Like starting, finishing? Oh, um, I like road trips. Um, I like driving from the Midwest, let's say early Colorado, and then all the way to the coast. So I did that many times because Iowa, California, all right. that that road got traveled many times. So here's what I like a lot about road trips, especially in that when you go from, let's say, East Colorado, um, you have these different speeds of landscape passing you by at different, you know. So you have your the thing that's outside of your window, the side of the road, and then you have the kind of mid-ground, and then you have the very far away, which goes from nothing, you know, flat, so I shouldn't say nothing, flat, mm-hmm. agriculture or whatever, or, or but not even agriculture. And then, and then you have the first, what I like is when you're in Colorado, you have the first sagebrush. And this is a really momentous, the first sagebrush, because you know that this is something is changing, something's happening. Then also the background changes very slowly. Then you sort of first, you have the first incline, a kind of a very distant mountainous type of thing. And this, I think that actually this kind of road trip window, like looking out your window in a road trip, was really influential for this mouthpiece seven form, which I call small dirty mirror, which it is. But there's something about it also that's like the surface level is very, very active and it's moving and it's moving fast. And there and a lot of things repeat because, you know, the sagebrush come back because there's another one and, and there's this like the re- weeds at the t- side of the road. There's a always come back. And then there's background stuff that doesn't move very much. So it's actually quite the whole piece is quite static. So there's not, you know, climax, nothing. It's just quite static. And this was the form. This was the form I wanted for the piece. And this this, I think, really relates to that to that road trip window. And the way, so the, but the way I built it was like this small, dirty mirror building. But I think the general um, feeling of it is like 15 hours. Because if you go, it, because then it, you really get the mountains. So then that's like a big thing. So I didn't, you know, just, but just 15 hours, like going from, let's say, South Dakota into Colorado. That's cool. That's very cool. And do you have a playlist? For cross country? Yeah. For, for any? Um, Oh my God, so many! I just like there's just so many t- possibilities for what you could listen to. Are you into like classic rock? Um, a little bit of hip hop. I could be, yeah. I could Britney listen Spears. to any. I, it's kind of like I like to just um, have open ears when I travel. So, well, and also I have some nice memories. So I remember being sort of quite young and driving with my mother and my brother and listening to Sgt. Pepper's across. So that's great. But also and on another trip, just turning on the radio, which is fantastic because then like what's going on, you know, what is on the radio? This is fantastic what, to hear what's happening here. But then also just sort of new stuff, you know, like whatever, um, you know, get some new CDs and put them in or yeah, so it just kind of, it's like a lot of, it's time to experiment, I think, hmm. to to drive and listen. Try something new? Yeah. Figure out what's out there? Yeah. I like it. What about road trip snacks? 
Are you? Oh. Do you snack in the car? Do you stop at a specific place um, for a specific thing? What do I do? Yeah, I don't snack. I like to drink water, and then I stop. That's very sensible. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think yes. I think I. Well, it depends on if I'm driving or if I'm. Not. But then when I drive, yeah, I think I don't. Um, but I like to stop and see what's going on. <laughs> it's like local local stuff, the towns you go through? Yeah. 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 That little pie stand on the side of the road or something? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's Word. good. What's your favorite animal? Oh, I like animals. I like, well, we were talking about giraffe. I mm. love giraffes. What other animals do I like? I like so many. Hamsters are fantastic. <laughs> if you had to pick a superpower, what would it be? Oh yeah, this is a good one. My first thought was writing good music. That would be my superpower. Mm, you already <laughs> have that one. I was like, that is a great superpower. Um, I mean, ending all suffering would be fantastic superpower. How do you imagine doing that, though? I don't know. Like how? Like like shooting blue bubbles from your elbows. <laughs> that could work. That's a great answer. What projects do you have coming up? What are you working on right now? What are you working on in the future? I have a piece I'm working on for Earplay um, in San Francisco, and that will be with actor and video, so I'm excited about that. That's a great a great one and then one for Chicago the Grossman Ensemble and those are kind of those two and then I want to write for you guys the Ekmelis yeah right. ensemble that's so gonna that, be awesome yeah I'm really really excited about that those are kind of the three is everything you write a mouthpiece and have you ever considered like not doing mouthpieces anymore or yeah I keep thinking I'm not going to do them and then it is one again. I I uh, many times have thought, okay, wrapping it up. <laughs> but then it doesn't wrap up so much. Um, but it interesting thing was, well, let's say, okay, so let's go back to the India project. Though that was really like, wow, I think I'm going to do a new direction. But what kind of struck me is that I'm still working with. I I thought that I was going to maybe do insects or something, you know, but it turned out that I was actually still fascinated by the sort of vocal structures. Um, It just turned out to be this other species. So then um, those pieces I sort of group in this, like the shillam kind of subset of the mouthpieces, but they sort of still, it's still so similar. It just, I didn't fully break off from the mouthpiece, you know? So it's so interesting because there's been many times, even like way back to, you know, mouthpiece 10 or whatever, where it's like, okay, here we go. Something, you know, different direction. But then there's always something like, well, I didn't, you know, I really wanted to go back and try that thing. That one thing I just didn't, you know, didn't quite get it in the way I wanted, you know? And then it's like, and I just want to keep doing it. So and I do it. I don't know. <laughs> but I really like, I like the kind of, I guess the India project made me happy because it was like, oh, I can really like look at how much room there is here. It's not, it's like so much bigger, so many directions actually mm-hmm. here, you know, it, um, which is exactly what I wanted. Like I wanted to sort of like have some, some really big kind of outside influence. Yeah. Are you looking for to expand, like get bigger? Would you do a mouthpiece with a full orchestra? 
Yeah, the, so there are some with orchestra, like nine, mouthpiece nine is voice and orchestra, uh, 20 and 13 and 20. Um, so that's fun too. Yeah, that's great. It's like big beast. Yeah. Okay. I think it's time to play Would You Rather. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> it's more fun than it sounds. <laughs> uh, okay. Aaron Gee, would you rather write music for a video game or for a restaurant? Oh, yeah. Um, do I get to choose the video game? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Video, I would say video game, like a real collaboration. That would be fun. Yeah. And you were saying the other day that your music is on one video game. Yeah. It's this one called Black, B-L-E-K. It's this a strategy app. And then, yeah, if, the, if, your, if your little line goes in the black circle, then I, then it's over. Then I go, doo, or or something. I do that. I have a few little sounds. And, and then, yeah. For that one, they just, like, edited. They just took bits from a thing you had already recorded. Yeah. You didn't get to write music Right, I didn't for get to. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. like a, it wasn't a full collaboration. But yeah. yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. Would you rather only eat asparagus for an entire year or be chased by an asparagus monster for one month. This, I'm fine with eating asparagus. I love asparagus. Okay. Yeah. But be, only asparagus? Yeah, you could in green or the white, you could rotate it around. Cool. <laughs> so many True. options. True. Good point. <laughs> yeah. Okay, would you rather be able to fly or read people's minds? Oh, fly. Fly is a good one. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Sounds like there's just a correct answer for that one. <laughs> Great. Depends on how power hungry you are, I think. I, I don't know. Reading people's minds, I think, is more masochistic than, uh, <laughs> yeah, than seems... powerful. Mm. That would just get weird real quick. <laughs> <laughs> would you rather have a long neck like a giraffe or a long tongue like a giraffe? Oh, yeah. I think neck. Neck would be fun. Might get a little awkward. Yeah, you just have a long neck in every situation forever, but... Yeah. And be useful. Yeah. Yeah. Could kind of make some shapes. Would you rather have pies for feet or Fritos for fingers? Fing oh, Fritos. Fritos. Oh, Fritos. Yeah. Could you still play the piano? I mean, they are sort of brittle. <laughs> they would kind of make tapping sound. Yeah. It would be really greasy. The next person who played the piano would be really mad at you. Pies... Pies, maybe some thick mince pies, meat pies. Ooh, yeah, that doesn't good. <laughs> I'm sure you get a good prosthetic. The old prosthetic meat pie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ooh, That's I a love band that name idea. Right. They would last longer than Fritos, too. Like, yeah. if you're really hungry, you can have a little piece of pie. <laughs> and you'd still have a lot of pie left. That's <laughs> true. I mean, it's technically auto cannibalism. I don't know if you want to go there. You know that old like performer's trick of imagining other people in their underwear. Would you rather constantly see everybody else in their underwear or have everybody else see you in your underwear all the time? Well, <laughs> I don't know. My first thought is, like, can you design their underwear and just pass it out? Like, can you have a big station where you're like, here's your... If it Choose helps. from these types of underwears. <laughs> yeah, why not? And then, 
you'd be safe all around. Some nice culottes. <laughs> <laughs> Just really modest underwear. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Culottes and a tank top. It's <laughs> a good solution. Just across the board. Yeah. Everybody gets For one. everybody. Yeah. This has been really informative and, like, interesting. Oh, good. Thanks, guys. These are great questions. Thank thank you so much for talking to us, Erin. Thank you. This has been great. This has been the Talk Editions podcast, episode six, with Erin Gee. For links to Aaron's music and to other things we talked about in this episode, check out our show notes. Aaron's piece, Mouthpiece 28, is featured on Talk's recent album, Ur, which you can purchase at talkensemble.bandcamp.com. Stick around to listen to the piece in its entirety at the end of this episode. If you're enjoying the Talk Editions podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review it so others can find us. For extra bonus points, tell your friends. Our next episode will feature an interview with the composer Natasha Deals. This episode was recorded at the Demena Center. It was produced by Marina Kipperstein and Charlotte Mundy and edited by Charlotte Mundy. For more information about talk, go to talkensemble.com. Thanks for listening.
Thank you.